a series called Gentle and Lowly, which is really a look at the heart of Christ, a look at the heart of who Jesus is in his deepest, most innermost being. And if you're a Christian, I hope it's kind of encouraging and reassuring to see in the words of the the series and the book we're based on that Jesus is in his innermost self describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart and that he wants you to come to him and find rest. Actually, if you're not a Christian, though, I hope it's also hugely encouraging to know that the God-man, the central figure of human history, whether you currently follow him or not, that the way he describes himself in his deepest self is that he is gentle and lowly and wants you to come to him and find rest for your souls. That what when God takes flesh, the kind of person he is, is that he wants to come to you and make himself and his heart accessible to you that you might find rest from the burdens you carry, from the pressure of feeling like you have to make your life count in such a way that you've justified your existence. You have to earn favor or you have to live a perfectly moral life. You have to achieve the things that, you know, live out the privilege you've been given and make sure you make the best of it. And Jesus says, listen, I... I want to give you rest for your souls so that you don't feel like you're continually striving. You can come to him and find forgiveness and wholeness in him because he wants to do those the, the difficult lifting for you, basically. He wants to do the heavy lifting for you. And I hope that's an encouragement not only for believers, but for those who don't yet believe in Jesus, that this is who God is when he takes flesh in his, in his heart, in his deepest form. And I think that I hope that's been helpful for us as we've tr- studied that through the the gospels and the first few weeks of the series and perhaps through the letters as well but I think deep down a number of us may feel somewhere something like this yeah I know that's what Jesus is like in his heart but what about the god of the old testament like I find it quite easy to accept that Jesus is gentle and lowly and all those things and wants me to come to him for rest but isn't the old testament not gentle and lowly but fearsome and scary or something like that And I think some of us, even though we might know that that's wrong, theoretically, in fact, that idea that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are are different, that the Old Testament God is, and that Jesus is, you know, that, that idea that they're different is a heresy known as Marcionism that was debunked nearly 2,000 years ago by the North African church father, Tertullian. He was fiercely addressed it and said, no, this is not what we believe. The God of the Old Testament is the God revealed in Christ, and they're exactly the one and the same God, and that's at the heart of our faith. But some of us may know that's true in here, but emotionally connect with the idea that actually they are different. And Christian art doesn't help us here because Christian art, which is The Bible generally doesn't think it's a good thing anyway. Pictures and statues of God don't go down well in the Bible. But when people have done Christian art, they often present Jesus like, whereas they present the Old Testament God, you know, big, and I think that idea that Jesus is, ah, and God is, does go quite deep in some of us. And then we're reading the Gospels, and then we read the Exodus or Ezekiel or whatever, and we seem to see a disconnect between the two. And it's to address that and to show you that the God in the Old Testament is exactly the same in his deepest heart as the God revealed in Jesus, that I want us to look at Lamentations chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bible, could you grab it and we'll turn to Lamentations chapter 3. And we probably know in theory that Jesus, as he does in the Gospels, Jesus gets angry and is fierce in many ways and confronts and rebukes And we also know that the God of the Old Testament defines his nature almost as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, merciful and gracious. And we, we probably know those things, but we may not always feel those things and they may not have the same resonance with us as perhaps the vision of Jesus presented in the gospel. 
So we're going to look a couple of times in this series and today at the heart of God in the Old Testament to help us see this is the same God. It's the same heart. He's exactly motivated by the same ultimate concern towards you as the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the God revealed in Christ. And so we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be surprised to find that his heart is the same. And this week we're going to see that from, as I say, Lamentations 3, which is basically the saddest, bleakest chapter in the saddest, bleakest book in the whole Bible, which is about the saddest, bleakest event which ever happens in the whole Bible, which is the exile of Judah uh, under, to Babylon. And it's the, it's the darkest thing that ever happens to Israel, and this book is entirely about it. It's basically a book, Lamentations, a book of tears. And in the center of this book, we read this long, miserable, in many ways, chapter, yet which has within it the most astonishing statement of the heart of God and what it means for God to have a heart towards you of good, even when bad things are happening, that I think you'll find anywhere in Christian literature. And what we're going to see there is that although God does express anger and although God does judge his people, and rightly so, and God does bring painful things to pass sometimes in our lives, he doesn't do that from his heart. That's not his heart towards you. And we're going to see what that means. It sounds strange and puzzling, perhaps, but we're going to see what that means and how it's articulated from Lamentations chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so I can't escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughing stock of all peoples, the objects of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He's sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. 
to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord doesn't approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? This is the word of God. The book of Lamentations is undoubtedly the saddest book in the whole Bible. It is a meditation on the disaster of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon, which happens in 587, uh, 586 BC. And that moment is the low point of the whole biblical story, really, from um, perhaps you might say apart from the death of Jesus uh, on Good Friday. But the low point of the whole of Israel's story is the deportation to Babylon and the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. This is where God lives and it's been raised to the ground. The walls have been smashed. The temple has been plundered and pulverized. And this, by the way, this, the event that Lamentation is crying about is the event that sets up for us and provides the need for the book of Nehemiah, which we looked back a few months ago. Remember when Nehemiah comes back and says, we've got to rebuild this thing, rebuild these walls. Well, the reason they were destroyed is because of the exile that Lamentations is mourning and grieving in this very emotional, visceral way. And it's an absolute theological disaster for Israel, not just an architectural and cultural one. So it's not just like the Blitz, you know, bombs fall and buildings go fall down and it's sad, but you just rebuild them. No, this is a, this is a theological disaster because the presence of God is in the Jerusalem temple. That's the place heaven meets earth and it's been destroyed. And so Israel is desolate. Uh, this is, and it, this is not just an invasion from Babylon. It's a judgment from Almighty God, and they know it. They know that God has judged them for their sins, and that's partly what makes it such a source of grief. So Lamentations is full of very vivid, gut-wrenching, emotional imagery to show how terrible and crushing this is, this event is. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away, verse four. That's a horrible image, right? But this is what happens. The Jewish poets, they never soft soap suffering. They never, you can't, it's one thing you can't accuse the Bible of. Oh, it's not real about suffering. It's like, oh my goodness, it's bleak and bitter and really, really, really gut-wrenching in places. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. Verse 13. He's made my teeth grind on gravel. Verse 16. Horrible image. I've forgotten what happiness is. Verse 17. So this is really dark. And it's also crystal clear in the text that it's not just that this is a really bad thing that's happened, but that it's God's judgment. So actually God has brought this affliction on them. That's really clear as well. It's not an accident. It's not even just a spiritual attack. So you can't read Lamentations and go, this is just the work of the devil. God doesn't want this for me. This is the work of the devil. No, Lamentations makes it very clear that this is God's judgment on Israel. It's an act of God. Verse one to two, I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Verse four, he's broken my bones. Verse seven, he's walled me around. I can't escape. Verse 15, he's filled me with bitterness and sated me with wormwood. Like these are strong, very strong bits of language and writing here to try and communicate this disaster is the work of God. Now Christians often very troubled by that idea and understandably. Christians, I think, find it quite upsetting, the idea that God ever might bring hardship into our lives and pain into our lives for our ultimate benefit. Now, that's a difficult category to understand. It's not easy at all. I'm going to try and unpack that a bit as we go. But sometimes Christians respond very fiercely against that. Say, no, no, no. I, one of the strongest worded sort of 
It wasn't quite a letter. It was, it was weird. It sort of sent me a sort of past the parcel thing. A, a woman in our church was really upset when I taught this. And she sent me a sort of past the parcel thing where each layer of the thing she'd sent me, I didn't know where it was going, had a sort of a question on it. And that, sort of unwrapping this thing, thinking it was a gift. And at the end, it had this, basically, how dare you speak about God as if he is the kind of person who would ever bring hardship into our lives. And people can really quite react to it. They're, they're quite shocked by the idea. But actually, Lamentations couldn't be clearer that this is what is happening in this case. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Isn't it from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? So it's, it's very clear. It's just, in fact, of the first 16 verses, 15 of them explicitly state that the sufferings of Israel in this case come from Israel's God. So it's very if there was any passage in scripture, let's put it this way, that would raise the question, does God actually want good for me? Or does he just want to smite me like this and break my bones and fire kidneys into my quiver? Is there any passage in scripture that would raise that question more, uh, more compellingly than this text? And I don't think there is. I think this is the one place in the Bible you'd go if you were looking for evidence that God's heart wasn't for your, for your blessing. That God's heart was just a smite you that's this was this is the chapter that raises that question in some ways in its deepest form and that's why in some ways I think it's such a helpful passage to go to to say even here in fact not just even here especially here the word of God is absolutely explicit that God's heart for Israel is not to destroy but to bless it's for good it's for compassion it's for grace and mercy and steadfast love and abundance and all the rest and it might mean it's, it's still very painful for Israel and they still have deep questions about why God has allowed it and done it. But the writer could not be clearer. Even in this darkest moment in Israel's history, the heart of God is to bless his people. And we're going to see why that's true. So as well as being the, uh, the darkest, most sad book in the Bible, the other thing you want to know about Lamentations is that it's also, and bear with me for a moment because this will sound like a, where's he going with it? But it's also the most carefully structured book in the whole of scripture. It's poetically beautifully structured and it's actually important for me to show you why and how this works so that you can see why I think it's so significant that it says what it says about the heart of God. So Lamentations is, is a symmetrical five chapter poem and four of the five chapters are called they're acrostics, which we would say A to Z poems. Now there's a, they don't have Zs, or they, they kind of do, but in Hebrew it's it's it runs, there's 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And what happens is in chapter one, there's 22 verses. And they basically go Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, all the way down the Hebrew alphabet. So verse one begins with A, verse two begins with B, verse three begins with what's effectively G, and but down they go. Chapter two, the same, 22 verses, A, B, C, D, all the way down. Chapter four, A, B, C, D, right? chapter five, 22 verses. The middle chapter, the one we've read from, chapter three, is not 20, so it's 22, 22, and then it's 66 verses in the middle, and then 22, 22. And the 66 verses are also acrostic, which means like A to Z. So the first three verses go A, 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 and then the ne next three verses go B, 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 and then the next go G, 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 and all the way down the alphabet. So it's very, very carefully structured. No other book in the Bible is like it. And what happens effectively is that in the middle section, so that you've clearly got chapters 1, 2, 4, 5, 22 verses. Middle chapter, 66 verses. And then in the middle of that, so it's like the whole book is structured to draw your attention to the middle chapter. And in the middle of the middle chapter, right, right in the heart of chapter, the long chapter 3, 
the center of the book, the summit of the mountain that the whole structure is leading your eye to, if you like, is the bit where the hope comes from. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord's my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'll hope in him. Now, I mentioned all that structure because I'm trying to show you that the way the book works is to sort of express laments, lament, lament here, lament here. And then in the middle, this major section here is, but look at the hope. Look at the heart of God. Look at what God's like. And then goes back to lament, lament. In other words, this is terrible. This is an appalling tragedy. It's an, a, just a desperate plight. There are, in fact, just this morning, I was reading the, reading the news about something on the day I'm recording this, just something terrible had happened, children being killed, and just the most appalling event happening in Texas that just motivates you to say, you can't really pray other than, Lord, have mercy, what's going on in this world? Like, there's a lot of events that rightly evoke that sort of response in us. But the Book of Lamentations is trying to build the whole structure around the fact that at the very center, there is the hope that ultimately God's heart towards you is not to do those things. His heart towards you is to bless you, even when at times you'll have many questions about what's going on. And in the exact middle of the book, the sort of the 33rd verse of 66 in the middle of this structure is Lamentations 3, verse 33, right at the heart of the book. And this isn't, as I say, this isn't like a hidden Bible code. It's not like, oh, wow, I found a weird little thing with numbering. No, this is in the, if you're a Hebrew reader reading it in the original language, A-A-A, B-B-B, all the way down, you'd know this is the middle of the book. It's the very centerpiece. And what it says is, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That's Lamentations 3.33. He does not, that the very middle of this extraordinarily intricately structured book is to say he doesn't afflict you from his heart. This is devastating. This is judgment on Israel's sin. This is, if you know your Old Testament, this has been coming for hundreds of years, right? Israel's idolatry has been full generation after generation and God says, that's it, we're done. You're going into exile. That's the only way to fix this is for you to see the scope of what you did. But my affliction of you, my people, is not from my heart. That's not my heart towards you. My heart towards you is filled with abundance and mercy and steadfast love and compassion and faithfulness. And I'm doing this because I know we need to do it in order to get you somewhere else. But my heart towards you is not to grieve you. And my heart towards you is not to afflict you. My heart towards you is to bless. So this is a book about the worst thing that's ever happened in the Bible. It's five chapters of anguished lament filled with sadness and pain and in the exact middle of the book comes the statement he doesn't afflict from his heart the lord does cause israel grief he does afflict israel in this in this situation but that's not his heart his heart's compassion and mercy and steadfast love and what he feels for israel and what he feels for you for the church is compassion his deep affection his overwhelming love and mercy and that heart is precisely what motivates him to bring sorrow when he does. So I can't be guaranteed that there's going to be no sorrow in my life. What I can be guaranteed of is that when there is, the heart of God motivating the sorrow is ultimately love for me. And I might not always be able to make sense of that, and I often can't. And Israel really couldn't in this situation. But that's what's behind the heart of God when those things take place. That might sound odd. 
See, how on earth can you afflict somebody out of love for them? But this is actually exactly what I did two weeks ago with my son. And this is a, I, I actually found this really, I, I didn't do this for the sake of the message. It only occurred to me after I was preparing it. But I actually found this a really hard, like I properly cried after this happened. But my son, we've had a bit of a rough, you know, run as a family. We had weeks, week after week of hospital trips and broken bones and sick bugs and COVID and all this stuff. And, uh, and my son then, sort of top it all off, he got chicken pox and was off for a week. But at the end of that week, just as he was clearing a chicken pox, we thought he'd go back to school. We noticed that his lower leg is swelling really badly and we don't really know why. And it's like his, it starts with his foot and then it goes to his ankle and then it goes up to his knee. And we eventually, we've got to take him into A&E and then they want to keep him in hospital overnight and they keep him in another night. And basically we've got doctor after doctor coming into his room going, yeah, we don't really know what this is. And so eventually they conclude it might be an infection triggered by the chicken pox. Who knows? So we're going to put him on IV antibiotics and going to inject something in him. The first injection went fine and he got a cannula, it's all right. But after two or three days, it's not going so well. And my son's six, right? This is a picture of him in hospital. Um, he did so well. I was really proud of him. But then they had to take it out and they had to put another cannula in. And oh my goodness, it was just traumatic. Have you ever seen my, my son? I think he's a brave boy, but he, they, the, the guy did it just didn't find the right vein and he was just howling, screaming, just so much pain. And they had to take it out and then they had to try again, which is even worse because then he now knows it does hurt. And they put all of the creams on to numb it, but it still doesn't work. And I am just like in such, it was ho so horrible. I'm holding his hand, looking at him saying, Sam, you have to let them do this. And he's like silently sobbing, like trying to stop himself crying as they're putting it in and he's in so much pain. And then eventually the blood comes out and they're able to put the cannula in. But for about Five minutes there, I was in the worst situation that I feel like parents, it's just horrible, isn't it, as a parent? You're looking at this child going, I am really hurting you here. I'm doing something, you cannot understand why I'm doing this. And I know that if we don't get it in, ultimately, it will be worse. It, this is actually for your good. I am afflicting you, Sam, but not for my heart. And I went away and I sobbed. I, I properly cried afterwards. It was, I haven't cried for months before that. It was really bad. And I just felt so much anguish about the fact that I put him through it. It hurt, in some ways hurt me as much as it hurt him. But I knew it was for his good and I knew we had to do it in order to get something better for him. And praise God now, he's running around in the garden playing football, he's better, it's all good and it ends with a lovely ending. But for a while there you're thinking, I am afflicting you, but not for my heart. That's not my heart towards you. My heart is such deep affection and love and compassion. And right now, Afflicting you in this way is the only way that I can assure your good in this way. I think it's exactly the same with God. God, like me in that sense, afflicts us, but not from his heart. Sometimes what comes out of his hand is grief, but what comes out of his heart is always grace. And I was struck by that in this hospital bedside thinking, oh, this is what it's like for God to bring any affliction at all to his people. He knows sometimes that's what has to happen for these people to mature or to be healed of something else. Exile is sometimes needed for them. But my heart for them is the steadfast love of the Lord never ends and his mercies never stop. That's the heart of God for his people. That's the heart of God for you. Even in the darkest moment of Israel's history or yours or the church's, his intention his deepest, most powerful motivation is steadfast love towards you. And that doesn't mean why, that you always know why those particular trials and challenges are there. Israel didn't. The psalmists didn't. Job didn't. 
I had no idea, actually, when I was in hospital with Sam, why God was allowing this to happen even to me. At one point, a doctor came and said to my wife, well, of course, if it's a blood clot, it's only a matter of time. I'm thinking, why would you say that of a six-year-old boy? Like, what is this thing? We, no one knew what it was. And many of us are facing far more serious trials than that right now. I know that. Like, I've probably, I've actually got other members of my own family who are facing more serious trials than this I'm referring to. And you might be looking at them going, what's God doing with this trial? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing in my own life. Israel didn't know in their time either. But in the midst of it all, even when you can't understand the whys and wherefores, you can trust the heart of God in it. Even if you don't know how that connects with this, the one thing you can't conclude is that the God who inspired lamentations and the God who in person went to the cross doesn't care about your pain. You know that's not the reason, right? The reason is that God somehow, for reasons only he understands, is bringing about a greater good in your life even if you don't know what it is and neither do I. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That's what Lamentations shows so clearly. It's what Paul saw so clearly in 2 Corinthians 4. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The road may be traumatic, but the end is triumphant. The means may may be affliction, but the end is glory. I want to finish by reading you the words of a Christian poet who saw this more clearly than most Christian poets have and who in many ways suffered more severely and saw this yeah, more clearly than, than most people in history. He was a, uh, his name was William Cooper and he wrote a collection of hymns with John Newton. And so the collection of hymns that involve, includes Amazing Grace and many other hymns. Uh, he wrote this and it, actually the opening words will probably be familiar to you even if you don't normally go to church. You've probably heard the phrase. God moves in a mysterious way. It's a very, become a very famous line. But he wrote that hymn, and he wrote it really out of his own battle with depression and suicidal thoughts and all sorts of other things he wrestled with. But I just think it's a beautiful expression in that sense of the heart of God towards his people. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God does not afflict from his heart. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, I ask for my brothers and sisters here who are suffering, struggling, floundering, asking deep, important questions. Lord, that you would bring revelation of the heart of God in Christ and the heart of God in the book of Lamentations. You would bring that as sort of as balm for our souls. Lord, that you would show us your goodness towards us, that you would empower us by your spirit to trust your heart, even if we don't know what your hand is doing in this moment. And Lord, we pray that you would unite us together as a community once again to throw ourselves on the beautiful mercy and steadfast love of God, whose track record is so perfect. Lord, while we have questions, we want to 
Perhaps continue to ask them and continue to pour them out before you, but to do so trusting that your heart for us is and has always been good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.